0: Shall we pray together? Our great Father in heaven, uh, we just gather before you this morning around your word and we need to hear from you. Uh, We are nothing apart from your work in our lives and so we ask that by your spirit, you would uh, do that work through your word, by your spirit amongst us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I should probably clarify this up front, that uh, there's a significant and uh, exciting meeting that we're having at our church uh, at about 11.30ish, so I'm going to race out the door at the end. Um, It's not because I don't like you, um, or you smell bad, or I don't know, something like that, it's just so you know ahead of time that that's what's going to happen. Let's get into it. I wonder what comes to mind for you guys when you think about obedience. Uh, Particularly a word that gets thrown around in Christian circles, obedience to the Lord. Um, Maybe the word obedience uh, brings back memories of high school. Tuck your shirt in, pull your socks up, stop talking, speak up, would you? Uh, I'm sure those are really great memories uh, for all of you. Uh, I was chatting with someone a while ago and they told me how WorkSafe had rocked up at the worksite and uh, they were telling them that they were doing something the wrong way, something that they've been doing for decades in a particular way. But they had to change, and they had to obey. These types of obedience frustrate us, I reckon. And I reckon there's a couple of reasons for it. We don't, we don't understand why we have to obey, uh, or we, perhaps we don't trust the person that we're being called to obey yeah, I reckon the thought of obedience, the, the, the thought of having to submit yourself to someone else out there, uh, can sometimes be quite a negative thought. I wonder if it's been the case uh, for you uh, when you think about obedience. But I want to tell you up front, when we get into this passage and start thinking about obedience, uh, particularly in the Christian sense, that's not, that's not the case when it comes to obedience to Jesus. And I reckon as we see what God has to say to us this morning, we're going to see why. Um, And we're going to have a look at three things in this passage uh, about obedience. We're going to see gospel obedience in the heart and in our lives, gospel obedience in the church, and gospel obedience in the end. So let's get into it. Gospel obedience in the heart and in our lives. Paul raises the subject of obedience in the very first verse. And Mikey will be excited by this. Uh, I heard his sermon from last week. The passage starts with a therefore. So what's it there for? The humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus have just come before, hasn't it? Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, emptied himself. He sought out not his own interests, but the interests of others and for the glory of his Father in heaven. He poured himself out completely, giving himself over to humiliation for the interests of others and for the glory of his Father in heaven. And so, verse 9, God exalts him. He elevates and promotes him to the highest place in the universe to one day be recognized by all as the king the true king, every knee, every tongue, every person submitted to him. Therefore, given this glorious king and his gospel, Paul commends the Philippians. He says, well done for their obedience, just as you have always always obeyed, he says. At this point, the Philippian church are about 10 years old, roughly, They received the gospel. When they first received it, they accepted it. And since then, they have been living in obedience to it. They've been faithful to Jesus. Which, by the way, is exactly the way we ought to respond, isn't it? This is the exalted Lord of the universe. It's fitting, isn't it, to submit to his rule? to live in his ways rather than our own. And for this very reason, obedience is not an optional extra to the Christian life. It's not something you can decide to do one day and then the next day think, no, that's off the shelf. No, at the very heart of being a Christian is to submit to Jesus as your king. It's at the very heart of our faith. He rules, we submit. He leads, we follow. He commands, we obey. And he gives a look, puts a little bit more flesh on the bone when he's uh, trying to describe this obedience. In verse 12, he describes it like this. He's, he's describing it as a working out of your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a bit of a, bit of a funny phrase there, isn't it? Work out your salvation. We've got to ask the question, what does, that, what does that actually mean? It's helpful to know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean work it out like a maths equation. You know, if you look at a problem long enough, you'll eventually work it out. Now, that, that's not what Paul is saying. It's not figuring it out. Uh, and on the other hand, it, nor is it working for your salvation. No, we share in our salvation that is a free gift from a loving God. Now I think it means taking the salvation that we have received from God, we're taking it and outworking it. Living out the implications of our salvation. It's, it's to push it down into our lives and to push it out into every single facet of our life. I wonder if you've... Uh, got ice cream from ice, uh, Cold Rock Ice Creamery before. Uh, have you seen what they do? They'll, they'll grab something like some Oreos and they'll put it right in the middle of a lump of ice cream and then <clears throat> they start to crush it up and push it into the ice cream and then work it out and push it all the way through. <clears throat> they knead it in so that the ice cream is now saturated with Oreos that's what outworking looks like. it's taking our salvation, pushing it in and kneading it into every part of our lives, thinking through what are the what is the gospel and what does my salvation mean in this part of life and this part of life and and this part of life. That's what outworking is. And this shows us what it means to grow up as a as a Christian, doesn't it? We become more and more shaped by the salvation that we have received. And as we do that, I just want to highlight one particular fruit that we would see in our lives as we do this. That one particular fruit would be humility. The humility of Jesus in the gospel is so striking, isn't it? He was in very nature God creator of heaven and earth and he took on a human nature and embraced death why did he do that? he did that for the glory of God and to serve the interests of others above his own and as we work out that salvation in our lives what would one of the results be? we'd start to see humility working itself out in our lives, wouldn't we? It's worth clarifying here that humility is not the opposite of confidence. It's not a lack of boldness or conviction or zeal. No, humility is something else entirely. I'm going to try and define it for you. Here we go. Humility is the growing awareness that your preferences... Your interests are not what your life is about. What you have to say in a conversation is not the most important part of a conversation. What you think and feel in a particular situation are not the most important. Humility is the growing awareness that the glory of God and serving the interests of others are of greater interest to you than your own. In any and every situation, the glory of God and the interests of others. And this actually means that a humble person won't actually know that they're humble. They'd be so caught up with glorifying their God in heaven, so caught up in serving the interests of others, that they've not given a thought to themselves. And genuine humility shows itself under pressure. Concern for the glory of God and the interests of others is easy to fake when things are nice and easy. It's a little more difficult to remain humble when there's conflict or perhaps things aren't going your way. To sustainably and continuously show concern for the glory of God and the interests of others in those circumstances, that's difficult. And it's in those very moments that we need the gospel of our salvation, don't we? It assures us that we are still loved in spite of our shortcomings, our forgiveness remains sure, and our place in the family is unchanged. But more than that, the gospel also supplies the power we need to be humble. Here's how. The gospel tells us that Christ, at great cost to himself, enduring shame and suffering, carrying the judgment of God upon his shoulders on the cross, Christ died serving our interests. He gave up all of that. He endured his suffering for our sake. creator of heaven and earth he endured humiliation and disgrace to serve your interests to serve the interests of the person next to you that is stunning grace and so we don't need to live this life looking out for our own interests any longer we have been lavished with grace upon grace We don't need to be a slave to our self-interests. And so, we work out our salvation. We work out our salvation deep into our hearts and deep into our lives, and we push it down and we push it out. And as we do that, we'll grow more and more like our Saviour. For a little while this year, I was riding my bike to work and home again each day. Uh, I live in Seville Grove, and I work at the church in Gosnells. I would ride along Lake Road, then Champion Drive, then shoot down the cycle paths along Tonkin Highway, and then I'd loop around on Albany to get onto Albany Highway. I wonder if you guys know that uh, path. Then I'd obviously do the reverse in the afternoon. And if you have your bearings right, you'll know what that means, that I'm riding east in the morning and west in the afternoon. Does anyone want to have a go what that might mean for me as I'm riding my bike sometimes? Oh, yes, sun in my eyes. There's also another reason. Yeah, that's right. It means both in the morning and in the afternoon, not every day of the year, I might add, but most days of the year, I'm hitting into the wind and it's, uh, it's highly demoralizing. Here I am, doing the right thing for my health, doing the right thing for the environment, not using the petrol, <clears throat> and then headwind, headwind, straight into it. And I reckon that can be, feel like, I reckon that is what it can feel like, trying to pursue our own obedience to the Lord. It can feel like such hard work, like the winds are full against us. We have our own flesh that wants to uh, be concerned for our own interests rather than those of others. But there is an absolute gold nugget worth holding on to in the verse that comes straight after, isn't there? Verse 13. After having called us to obey, he says for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. Let's just take a moment to think about that. Which God is it? It is the God who exalted the Lord Jesus to the highest place. It's the same God who elevates him to the most highest place in the universe who raised him up from the dead it's that God who is working in us and that is wind in our sails to continue in our obedience as we obey God is right there working in us and I reckon that does two things to our obedience There's two really important things. The first one is that we do our obedience in dependence on him. Not with self-reliance, not not as though we can muster up this energy and uh, effort within ourselves, uh, not with the right amount of focus or grit or tenacity. No, we, we do it in dependence upon the God who is working in us. And the second thing is, We can obey with confidence. We don't need to feel defeated. It's God working in us as we obey. So yes, we will come against challenges and road bumps and walls that we need to get through in our own obedience to the Lord. But we can do it with confidence because God is working in us. And he's working in us to fulfill his good purpose for us. And so we obey. Not defeated, not self reliant, but dependent and with confidence. So that's obedience in our hearts. We then move on in the following verses uh, to obedience in the church. Paul now moves on to apply what he's been saying in these first couple of verses in an awfully specific way he says to them verse 14 do everything without grumbling or arguing paul has the philippian church community in his sight as he says these things he's speaking to their church community as a whole and as he's thinking about how they might work out their salvation with fear and trembling there's this particular thing that he thinks he needs to name boldly, arguing and grumbling, arguing and grumbling. It's what happens when our own self-interests become what is most important, isn't it? You see, when, when my interests are more important than your interests and we're coming up head to head, I'm going to argue with you that on that. I'm going to make sure that my interests are looked after in that circumstance. And so arguing and grumbling, you could say, is the opposite of humility. It's serving my own interests above your interests. And make no mistake, these things will drive a wedge between people. It will drive a wedge and split communities think of an axe. An axe is a very just a sharp wedge. An axe comes through and hits a tree and it will split it in two. Arguing and grumbling will be like a wedge between people. And Paul here is making a very pointed and confronting application for the Philippian church. We know from the rest of the book of uh, Philippians that uh, the rest of the letter that Paul has written to the Philippian church that their sense of togetherness is really important. He imagines them functioning as a group and a community that strives side by side for the cause and the advance of the gospel. In chapter 1 verse 27 he calls them to stand firm in one spirit. Chapter 2 verse 2 and 3 he tells them to be like-minded to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In chapter 4, verse 2, he even calls out two people by name. Could you imagine that if I rocked up and called out two people by name and said, hey, get your head in line? Paul calls out Iodia and Syntyche. He calls on them to agree in the Lord, to be reconciled to each other, to acknowledge their own sin to each other, and to offer forgiveness. Here in verse 14, Paul is calling them out for their sin, and he's calling it how he sees it. He's saying, Church, stop with the grumbling and arguing. Be finished with the gossiping and snarky comments. Do not cut down your leaders behind their backs. Do not let anything drive a wedge in the gospel community. It's precious. Don't let self interest drive a wedge. Of course, it's no surprise that when we throw a hundred people into a building together and and tell them to meet together every week and to be united in the cause of the gospel, all who are sinners, it's no surprise that arguing and grumbling would slowly surface, wouldn't it? It's actually the true test of your humility. You can't call yourself humble and close yourself behind a door. It's never tested. But here's a test. Commit yourself to a gospel community. Not just attend, and not just for a few weeks or months either, but commit yourself to a community of believers. Be part of a Bible study. Get alongside and serve in some way. Be in lo- involved in the lives of those around you. Get to know them. Allow, you, allow them to get to know you. And that will test your humility. You see, it puts you in a fairly vulnerable position, doesn't it? People will probably start to see the gaps in your godliness. Maybe they start to see your anger problem or your workaholism or your passivity or your gossiping or your prayerlessness. And what will you do then? Because in those moments, you might be tempted to just cover up, retreat, put on a face, put on a mask. Or will you trust the Lord of the universe that there is not one sin that his death on the cross has not covered? And so be joyful and confident in him that it doesn't matter if people see that I struggle or fall short. I've trusted in Jesus. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to make excuses. I can be open. I can be honest. I can ask for people's forgiveness. And to flip it, what about when you see the gaps in someone else's godliness? When you see someone else falling short. I want to be clear here that sin is not something to cover up or to ignore in someone else. As a brother or sister in the Lord, we we want to get alongside them and help them in the the battle for obedience to the Lord. But there there is a way that we could respond to seeing the gaps in someone else's godliness that will drive a wedge into a community. You see, you could see it as an opportunity to pounce on them, to gossip behind their backs about how they're falling short in this particular way, or or just even in the quietness of your own heart and mind to condemn them. We have to hear this question, does that reflect the way that Jesus treated us? when he saw the gaps in our godliness. He humbled himself to the point of death to save people, not just with gaps in their godliness, but with no godliness at all. That definitely includes me, and it certainly includes you. When we see the gaps in someone else's godliness... It's not surprise or shock. In fact, we expect it, don't we? When we see them, we embrace them as a brother or sister in the Lord. We embrace them as someone covered by the blood of Jesus. And we get alongside them. We get behind them in striving to live a righteous and godly life. That's what humility would look like in the life of a church. To quote uh, a famous pastor, his name's Tim Keller, he passed away not long ago, he said this, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. In other words, it's not a place you come to to display something to your brothers and sisters, to somehow conjure up their impress you know impress your brothers and sisters oh no, it's a hospital for sinners so let me ask you a couple of questions what's going on in your heart and mind when you gather here each sunday what are the thoughts that are going through your mind or the comments that are made on the drive home about your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this is as good a time as any to ask the question, is your behaviour towards the church more characterised by arguing and grumbling or grace and unity in the Lord? Being part of a church is not for the faint-hearted. But here's the beautiful thing. If we're willing to be humble, humble ourselves before the Lord, to allow that humility to work itself out in our lives, as brothers and sisters encouraging one another, if we would allow that to happen, What would be the result? Verse 15, we will shine as a light. We will shine in a light, like a light in this region. You see, the local netball club, the local cafe, and the local church all have the same problem they're full of sinners but only one of them has the power of God to transform. Only one will shine as a light in this world. But only if we would submit ourselves in the power of the Spirit to the Lord Jesus and the gospel of our salvation. Finally, uh, Paul then turns to consider obedience in the end. Obedience in the end. Uh, Paul calls on the Philippians to commit to gospel community, to being part of a a gathering of people who strive side by side for the cause of the gospel, Uh, to be a community that works out their salvation with fear and trembling, to hold fast to the word of life. And he gives us one of the reasons why he does that. And we see it there from verse 16 to the end. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul has in mind here the day of of Christ the day of the lord jesus return the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that the lord jesus he is the king of the universe and it's on that day that everything will be revealed those who held fast to the word of life will be bowing their knee confessing with their lips with rejoicing and celebration confessing that this lord jesus is the king of the universe While those who held fast to the things of this world will be bowing and confessing with anger and despair as they face the judgment of the exalted Lord of the universe. And for Paul, he desperately wants to see the Philippian Christians bowing with him, rejoicing and celebrating at the Lord Jesus. He wants them to be there in his arms. That's what it would mean for him not to have laboured in vain. He longs that they would hold fast to the gospel. Verse 17 can be a little bit difficult to understand. He speaks of being poured out as a drink offering upon the, the sacrificial offering of the Philippian church's faith. In the background is the twice daily sacrifice of the lamb from the Old Testament. And as a lamb was placed on the altar a cup of strong drink would be poured over that lamb and together they would make a sacrifice that God had ordained. And what Paul is saying here is that the faith of the Philippians, their trust in the Lord, is like placing a lamb on the altar. That's the sacrificial offering there in verse 17. And Paul himself is the drink offering being poured out over the sacrificial offering. And so what Paul is saying here is that they are making a sacrifice together. It reminds us of back in chapter 1, verse 30, how they're engaged in the same conflict. And Paul is making an astonishing point here. He's saying it would be rejoicing for me if I were to be utterly poured out as a drink offering it means that you believers are holding fast to the gospel on the day that Jesus returns. That he would be poured out as a drink offering. Whether that means suffering, long hours of toil, persecution, opposition, dealing with tricky people, not to mention any names, Iodia and Syntyche. Nothing is off the table in terms of what Paul would do to see people holding fast to the gospel on the day that Jesus returns. And if they are, then rejoicing. Not just for him, but verse 18, also for them. I'm not sure how good your memory is of what high school was like, uh, but something people always used to say was this. High school goes so quickly. Enjoy it while it lasts. Then, of course, it would be week after week of assignments and then you'd be thinking, when is school going to end? Um, I wonder, is there anyone in that kind of boat right now? But then they say exactly the same thing when you hit your 20s. The time goes past so quickly. Enjoy it while it lasts. And then it continues when you start to have children. They say, enjoy them while they're little. They grow up so fast. You know, we will stand together on the last day when the Lord returns and we will say exactly the same thing. We will say, that time went so fast. And we'll look back and we'll see what it is that really mattered we'll also see the things that we consumed ourselves with that didn't matter at all and in light of that let me ask you this question will you join in will you join in with Paul's struggle will you join him in his labor and toil in advancing the gospel both in your own life but also in the life of the church In this region, in this city, in this world. The thought struck me this morning that I'll be standing there on the last day, the day that the Lord has returned, and I'll say, Hey, Mikey, chatting with Mikey, I might chat with Andy and Treaty as well, and might be just chatting with all of you, and we'd be looking back. And I wonder what we would say are the good things? What are the things that we'd look back on and think that was worth doing? And it's so upside down that Paul would do the same with us. He'd look back on his life and he would see those times when he was completely given over, enduring the worst suffering, being persecuted, abandoned, And he would look at those things and he would say, that is the good life. He'd say those moments when he was holding on by a thread for the sake of the gospel. He'd say that was meaningful living. That was the good life. There was a famous cricket player called C.T. Studd. He's got a famous uh, quote that I want to share with you. He played in the original Ashes test match, but then he became a missionary in India. And he said this, Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray, Lord Jesus. You gave up your life, you who were in very nature God, creator of heaven and earth, took on human flesh, embraced humiliation and death for the glory of God and the interests of others, displaying to us perfect humility. Humility beyond what we could conjure up within ourselves. And yet, Lord Jesus, we ask for your help. Please help us to be humble. Would you help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Give us confidence, knowing that you are the one working in us, Might we be a community of people who strive side by side for the cause of the gospel. Who encourage one another. Who get alongside one another in the pursuit of holiness and righteousness. In the pursuit of serving the interests of others and the glory of God above our own interests. And Father we ask for your help because we need it